Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. Adam Crafton, David Ornstein and Laurie Whitwell are with us. Coming up today, we'll look at what Manchester United can do, if anything, to close the gap between themselves and City. And speaking of City, it looks like they're one of two possible destinations for Erling Haaland. A decision will be made in the coming weeks, according to David. So we'll talk more about that. And also, Oli Kay will be with us to discuss his piece on Roman Abramovich, the most high-profile but most private owner in English football. Let's start with the Manchester derby then. Manchester City making light work of Manchester United yesterday. From a United perspective, did we really learn anything, Laurie? Anything new there? Yeah, I I suppose, listen, it was an unusual selection, wasn't it, from Ralph Ranić? Um, Pretty radical, trying something unorthodox. There were moments in the first half where it looked like it worked. You know, certainly the goal was a, a combination of those kind of players having them in those positions, Pogba and Bruno, in a way that actually um, came off in, in quite glorious fashion. Sancho with a really good finish. But then um, you could see that City, I think, were perhaps not quite at it from the get-go. I know they scored early, um, but they actually they, they kind of gave United a lot of possession. And then once they figured out United system, they just put the foot down, ramped it up, and it was a cruise for them, wasn't it? And, and the substitution from Ralph Ranić, you know, taking off Pogba, and putting on Jesse Lingard and Marcus Rashford seemed to actually make United worse. Um, and, and they did surrender, really, didn't they? At the end, there was um, jogging around the pitch and City toyed with them. Um, it was pretty embarrassing. I mean, on so many levels, Adam, it was pathetic, wasn't it, really? It was. In some ways, I'm almost surprised by, you know, the, the extent of the reaction that's come out of it in that, you know, what did we learn from the game? Man City are really good and Man United are pretty average. Man United have been sort of, swept along a little bit over the last few weeks by a pretty easy run of fixtures. They've not played anyone of real note. And, you know, they've had enough warning signs against half-decent teams, whether it's Wolves or Aston Villa, Atletico Madrid to a certain extent, that when a proper team comes along, this might happen. I think one of the quite interesting things about Rangnick as an experience of him being interim manager is, I'm still not sure why they brought him in. Was the aim of that of him being brought in to get Manchester United in the top four, or was the aim to start to impose a style of football within the club. If it's the latter, and this is part of some process where the next coach will carry it on, then I suppose you can kind of half accept the short-term pain that comes with it. But if it's just, you know, basically a little bit of vanity for Rangnick trying to impose his style of football until the end of the season, and they still don't get in the top four, you're kind of back to where you started again with a new manager coming in in the Europa League, imposing a whole new style of football all over again. And by the looks of it, half the players don't want to be there. So other than that, it's great. A lot of their decisions seem to be, from what I hear, governed by fear, um, whether it's in the transfer market or in this case, appointing of 
an interim manager or populist decisions. So taking somebody who was seen as being the godfather of German football and gegenpressing, who everybody talked about and it would go down well. Michael Carrick wasn't doing terribly in, in the interim role. Of course, Ralf Ranjek is vastly more experienced, but he hadn't been in the dugout himself for 10 years. And we know he's a builder of projects, largely behind the scenes in more recent times. He was never going to have time he was inheriting a squad that's got significant fault lines and issues and egos. You know, the signing of Cristiano Ronaldo, I'm sure we can get into, was, not, I don't know if it was de- divisive at the time, but it certainly led to quite a lot of division. And he was only going to have a, a, a small number of months and then this subsequent consultancy, which we don't know if that was a clear plan. Certainly they didn't know exactly what form that would take and still don't from what we hear was it just to spread out the the payment over a longer period of time did they really know what they were getting themselves into or were they just taking somebody who um, has got a good reputation so it points back again to muddied muddled thinking off the pitch which is far behind the way the best performing clubs in Europe operate and that's then permeating and filtering to a mess on the pitch too. Just on Rangnick and and this lorry may be giving well it 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 probably is giving the people that run United a lot more credit than they deserve with this theory. But if you bring Rangnick in knowing he isn't going to take the job permanently, knowing how he can build a structure for a club, knowing that he will then stay on as a consultant, then actually Ragnick has a long-term view on behalf of the new manager that comes in. So Ragnick, in the space of six months, seven months, whatever he's there, can probably make decisions on several players, aside from them just being footballers, on character, which would be very, very interesting at the moment. And then the decks are half cleared for whoever comes in with Ragnick not, not doing it for his own agenda, but actually doing it for the club and the new manager coming in. That is a theory that you could use to justify why they've gone down this route. Certainly. And I do think that there is merit in that. And also the fact that you know that he's not going to get the job permanently. So they can actually talk to managers now and find out what the score is, whether they want to come, what the financial package might be without upsetting the incumbent. Because usually you know, in managerial transitions, you, you, you know, you, you're kind of perhaps planning in the background and trying to do it a little bit secretly. Um, and and the, the guy, if he hears about it, that's in the position at the moment, that undermines his authority. Ralph Rennick, we already know, is, is going to be an interim and you can debate whether or not that's already undermined his authority with certain players. I certainly think that it's up to United how much of a consultant he wants to be. It's up to him a little bit as well. And, and as you say there, Chappers, he might well pass comment on various different players for the successor to come in and, and they can kind of choose and, and select whether to listen to that opinion or not. I won't ask Laurie this because that's unfair given he's he's the United uh, correspondent for, for the Athletics. So I'll ask Adam this. Is this a good job to get? It's all very well going, oh, United want Pochettino or United want Ten Hag. Is this a good job to get? Bearing in mind we're talking about, you know, the shambolic nature of of a club's hierarchy. We're talking about players who seem to leak every other decision out of the dressing room. Half of them don't run around. Half of them want to leave. I'm exaggerating slightly. No, I'm not sure you are. I'm not yeah. sure you are. <laughs> if you if you're well, if you're Ten Hag 
and a successful at Ajax and might look around and think, well, there'll be other jobs that will come up in the next two years. Why would I want to go and take charge of a circus? Yeah. I always found it really interesting over the last 15 years when managers took the job at Leeds, where you know it had been a complete circus, um, very, very difficult to succeed, not really the culture or, env- culture or environment to succeed. But managers always took the job because they wanted to be the man that that put Leeds United back in the Premier League or back, you know, where they belong, all that sort of stuff. Um, obviously, Leeds is a different club now to, you know, what it was three or four years ago. But I, I look at Man United now and I, I do think it's pretty similar to that in terms of, you know, you're going into an environment where on the one hand, you, c- you could look at it this summer and say, I've got a blank canvas because there's quite a few players who will be leaving the club. You know, you'd expect Cavani, you'd expect Pogba, Lingard, I'd expect Ronaldo. There's probably more players that we could list, that, you know, big name players that you would expect to leave the club this summer. And you're starting again a little bit. So here's your chance to, to kind of build your own way. The, the problem with that is, to use the, the phrase that every pundit uses, this is Manchester United. And that there, there will be a long-term process and a three-year plan, but there is also short-termism around Manchester United that you know the fact the very fact about how angry everyone is because they've lost against Manchester City yesterday kind of un- underpins that Ralph Ragnick's lost two games in the time he's been at Manchester United and everyone's basically decided he's not up to it and that may well be the case and I know they've drawn a few games as well but is there that sense of you know fans being prepared to take the short-term pain that might be necessary in the way that Arsenal fans have over the last year or so with Arteta. That's not always been easy, by the way. He's almost no. been on the, you know, I've sat on this podcast and said it looks like there's a, no way back for him um, at mm. the start of the season. So there's no easy way out of this. And yeah, if I'm to actually answer the question, which I've not done, um, Ten Hag, if I'm him and I'm looking at an environment at the moment at Ajax, which is perfect for him, right? The structure's there, well, it was at least until Mark Overmars left the club. Um, the structure the culture, the, the academy, everything was in place. Do you look at Man United and see the same or do you wait for a better option to come along? And, and just on that, before, before I talk to David about Ronaldo and bring David in there, Laurie, do you expect a lot of players to leave the club this summer? Because virtually every summer, for the past few summers, you'd expect several players to leave the club and United are notoriously dreadful at selling people. I mean, it'd take a special kind of incompetence to not be able to shift Lingard and Pogba if they're out of contract. But I mean, you know, who knows? But um, do you, I mean, others, do you expect Do you expect them to be able to sell players for ones? I don't necessarily expect it. I mean, Anthony Marshall was one that Adam didn't mention. He's obviously on loan at Sevilla. I forgot about him. There's, there's, there's suggestions that they aren't going to take up, you know, the option to buy um, or, you know, extend that beyond a loan in this season. He's on a lot of money. It's it's that you know golden cage that a lot of United players are in, where they're on wages that other clubs just can't afford, and therefore you have to sort of pay them off um, in a certain way to actually sell them. It's it's a such a complex situation that is of United's own making. So yeah, I would expect that there's lots of interest and, and talks about players. When whether that actually translates into players departing the club, I, I, I'm you know I'm waiting on that one. But I would just say on on what Adam said about you know managers actually wanting the job. Weirdly, it's still Manchester United. You know, so you still got Eric Ten Hag. Okay, it's all settled for him at Ajax. But United's another level. And if he can come to Manchester United and and prove himself, you know, for example, 
uh, methods or win something with United. That is such a carrot for managers. Mauricio Pochettino, even the same. I know he's at Paris Saint-Germain, but Manchester United is this kind of romantic, mystical entity that actually, if you succeed there, you've, you've made for life. And these managers, when they look at the quality of the squad and they look at the resources that will be spent in the transfer market and the history and the infrastructure and the allure of United, and they do have other options. Ten Hag will, Pochettino will, and, and various others too. I totally agree with Laurie. They they will still take United, of course they will, and they'll back themselves to succeed. And if they don't, they'll get a handsome payoff. But someone's going to succeed and bring United back. And that's why there's this attraction that one of those guys will want to be that person. And when you speak to people in football, at least people I speak to, they do look around that squad and say they're far better than they're performing. Yes, there's some players who are not at United's level. And yes, there are some characters who are not seemingly pulling in the right direction. But David, this is what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer said when he came in. This is what Ralph Ragnick said when he came in. Well, Solskjaer had no pedigree to get that job and he had no real authority like you would imagine some of the top managers would in the market to mould it correct me if I'm wrong and Ranjit came in mid-season with no one really clear on what his power was and will be United I guess when you look back they have they've tried the they've tried Jose Mourinho they've tried uh, Louis van Gaal Moyes it doesn't fill you with confidence about what (laughs) Pochettino or Ten Hag will do but the executive structure has changed since then and I think the one hope perhaps for United fans is that with Richard Arnold replacing Ed Woodward although of course Joel Glazer still pulls the strings from what we're hearing but then with John Murtagh and Darren Fletcher um, a slightly different face to the football operation side of things then perhaps there will be a little bit more autonomy there are some really good young players there I don't know if they'll be blended in the way you say that Arsenal have um, done well in recent times, but I I don't think it's as doomsday as some do feel. Let's move on to the Ronaldo story then, David, that you reported with Laurie on. And what on earth has gone on there this last week? Yeah, well, it emerged to us through multiple sources that he wasn't going to be playing in the starting lineup for the derby and, in fact as the match drew closer, that he wouldn't be involved in the squad at all. And so naturally you make your phone calls and speak to as many people and cross-reference information as possible. And, you know, this emergence of an injury of sorts did come through. So there's no reason to doubt that necessarily. But equally that Ranić had been preparing for this match with maybe a false nine that might not have included Ronaldo which immediately leads to suggestions from people you speak to that he wasn't going to be involved anyway, irrespective of what's said to be a hip flexor injury. And then we learned that he um, had jetted off to Portugal ahead of the derby. You know, on face value, it's just an injury, but I think there is credible grounds for looking a bit deeper into this and asking what the future holds for United with Cristiano Ronaldo, reflecting on their decision to sign him, which you speak to so many different people and get so many different versions of it. And back to that point I mentioned earlier in the pod about being governed by fear because Manchester City seemed set to sign him. When you speak to people there, they said, no, they weren't prepared to do it. Manchester United like to make out that they won that race, but they're not looking so sort of chipper about it now. And this, among pretty much everyone you speak to now, is 
appearing to be a huge problem for Manchester United going forward. Yeah, just to echo David's point, it's a really intriguing situation. We've had it before this season where Ronaldo's presence um, is a very opinionated guy. Um, he certainly voices his opinions to players and to, to managers. He's been a consistent theme throughout the season. Um, and listen, he might say, well, I've lived up to my end of the bargain. I've scored the goals. I'm the top scorer. I've dragged you through the Champions League group stages with six group stage goals. But the cost of that is is up for debate, isn't it? It's, it's how the rest of the front line has shifted around to accommodate him. And I think before the game yesterday, it was the fourth um, had the fourth most minutes of any Manchester United player in the Premier League, so behind you know, De Gea and, and a couple others, and he didn't start until the fourth game of the season. So the kind of regularity with which he's played is kind of astounding at 36, 37, and he gets substituted away at Brentford and obviously you know, throws a bit of a tantrum. Um, so clearly he has shown how he feels about playing, and you know you wonder... Listen, we don't know exactly what's gone on behind the scenes, but the fact that United were training with a false nine um, ahead of him suffering the injury uh, with the hip flexor is kind of interesting. If he was on the bench for the game, um, it would be pretty bruising to his ego, I think, for the Manchester derby to be put on the bench. Although it wasn't, you know, it's not the first time, you know, you look at Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, he put him on the bench against Everton and that went absolutely swimmingly, didn't it? That There was no repercussions after Carrick that. Carrick had him on the bench at well, Chelsea. They've all done it. I mean, at the, at, when you mentioned Carrick before, um, I, I sort of thought, actually, he, he did have... He knows the players, you know. So Ralph Randick came in without knowing the players, whereas Carrick obviously knew the players. So for that period of it, as an interim manager, or as a caretaker interim, he actually got sort of decent results, didn't he? Obviously, the, the, the result away to Villarreal, where he put Ronaldo on the left wing and, and started Anthony Marshall up top, and it actually worked to, to United's benefit. And, and yeah, he started Ronaldo on the bench against Chelsea. And afterwards, he sort of said, oh, it wasn't a big deal. You know, Ronaldo clearly was listening to the instructions that he was giving him before going on onto the pitch. So you do wonder the extent to which... Ronaldo is looking at Ralph Rennick as a manager and, and, and perhaps he's decided that he's not going to necessarily take every decision that he, he puts out there. And he feels like you know, maybe he should be starting a Manchester derby, whatever his hip flexor problem. I do think in the, inter- like, in the interest of balance, a lot of the points over the last sort of six or seven years where Man United have taken big decisions, I think a lot of people have agreed with them at the moment they took them. So for example, when, when Rangnick came in, I mean, the gist was, this is the smartest thing Manchester United have done, done for years. When they appointed, you know, when the, the, if you remember the point where Solskjaer was made permanent manager, you, you had players going on TV after that PSG game, basically begging for him to be made the manager. I don't just mean Rio Ferdinand in the studio. I mean, players who had played in that game. And Jose Mourinho, everyone was saying about time they got him. Van Gaal at the point they got him. Moyes at the point he was, you know, so... I, th- I think we have to be, sl- and, and Ronaldo the same, you know, the worst, you know, I remember James Horncastle being on a podcast with him and him saying, this is a really bad idea with Ronaldo. But the gist was, how can't they do that deal? You know, what you hope is, you know, the, as the average person in the media, you hope that the executives making the decisions are smarter than you are, um, ultimately, and prove you wrong over time in the way that, you know, I'm very happy to be proven wrong by what Arsenal have done at the moment. Um, that's not to make myself out as completely clueless, but uh, but but at the same time, I, I just think like you have to be slightly careful with the benefit of hindsight of saying Man United get everything wrong all the time, even if that's the way that it, it has kind of turned out. Yeah, and that like dilemma and pressure isn't easy and it's all well and good us saying with hindsight, but isn't that the exact reason why United fans are baying for these best-in-class sporting director executives who are experienced and proven and paid that level of money and installed 
in that sort of position at one of the biggest clubs in the world to either get those decisions right or do the best job of coming as close as possible and standing back from the noise and from conversation among people like us and fans and plotting their course and you mentioned Arsenal it seems to be going well with this youth policy under Arteta City United uh, sorry City Liverpool you know Chelsea various times if you were to strip the names and history away from some of these clubs and just look at how they operate it's like testing different brands of water without the label on the likes of Brighton Hove Albion and Leicester would come out way above Manchester United in recent times it's one of my favorite segments on this morning when they blind test different food uh, products is it bad that that's where my mind went to <laughs> i was just my head was just filling holly this episode is brought to you by Michelob ultra the official beer sponsor of the nba want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob ultra courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive nba prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an nba game and more head over to michelobultra.com slash courtside to learn more <laughs> The Athletics' Oli Kay is with us now to discuss his piece on Roman Abramovich, who announced that he will be putting Chelsea up for sale. In the course of putting this piece together, did anything stand out to you, surprise you? There are two very, very different portrayals of him. Um, I was trying to sort of speak to people who had worked with him and and, and um, knew him a bit better than the rest of us do after 19 years. One thing that does really confuse me about Abramovich is this absolutely persistent suggestion from his people and his camp and his lawyers in particular over the last few years that he is not involved in politics. He does not have a relationship with Vladimir Putin. And it's a very, very strange situation where we've got the owner of one of the Premier League's biggest clubs sort of being talked of as either a a force for evil in in, in this whole situation or as somebody who's behind the the peace talks. Nobody really seems to know what the truth is. That is the reason why you get opinions at either end of the spectrum. And it is a very large spectrum, I suppose, when it comes to opinions on him. But the reason the opinions are so divided is, one, because obviously football, <laughs> tribalism in football sometimes gives you a very skewed view of, of the world, no matter who you support, or, or skewed view of individuals. And I say again, no matter who you support. But also because it is very hard to find stuff out on him isn't it it is yeah and, and there's there's a lot of um i mean there's a lot of stuff that that, that you read that isn't true or, or that or that isn't verifiable or, or that people deny there have been some wonderful books about russia and, and by very very well connected journalists who've had to who've had to withdraw allegations or withdraw insinuations from um what they've written about him or what they've written about that putin regime or or, or whatever or, or about the other oligarchs so it's very difficult from that point of view. If you're a Chelsea fan, he's given you happy memories. You've had great experiences with your friends and family. You've had trips all over Europe. And there hasn't very often been things published in the media that would dispel that vision for the reasons that, that Ollie outlines. So now all of a sudden you're being bombarded with a message that this guy is XYZ, but he's still not under any sanctions, Britain, the US or the EU. And last week, we're told on Monday that he was, he'd actually been contacted by a Ukrainian actor to assist the the peace process. 
between Russia and Ukraine. And then you also have this bizarre situation as well, where actually that the Holocaust Memorial Museum has written to the United States asking for Roman Abramovich not to be sanctioned on account of the donations that he's made to that museum in Israel. So I can understand why there'll be some Chelsea fans looking at all of this, reading the bits that they want to read and just thinking, what's going on? Why is he having to sell his club? And of course, there's this whole other side of it, um, which is also laid out in Ollie's piece, which is these links and associations that have been detailed by those who have studied Abramovich more closely for a longer period of time. And it makes it very difficult. And I think that's why even the statement he made on Wednesday night, that statement which he dropped where he said, I'm selling the club. And by the way, the net proceeds are going to go to a foundation that will be donating towards the victims of the war in Ukraine. We're not being told who will run this foundation where this foundation will be set up. Will this foundation be giving just to Ukrainians or also to Russian victims of the war, which apparently seems to be the case. That's been the widespread report. It's left it almost purposefully quite obtuse and quite difficult to read. And I think that's really where it is at the moment, slightly hedged. And it's going to be really interesting over the next few weeks, if sanctions come in, what the impact of that's going to be on his ability to sell Chelsea and also the ability of potential buyers to get involved with buying it from Chelsea because do you want to be the, the guy or the fund that's helping someone who is who is facing sanctions? And that's going to be something that develops massively over the next few days and weeks. That's going to be the most interesting thing, the, the weeks and maybe even months ahead because when you speak to people around this situation, they expect the fan support among Chelsea supporters to, to rise and to increase his camp feel there is no reason to sanction him obviously um, and they are adamant they don't believe he will then the obvious question that you ask as a journalist is well would he change his mind you know you've got you're saying no sanctions the Chelsea fans are fully behind him then why not stay and continue but it's very clearly relayed that no he feels the time has come but they're very clear and we make this point within a big piece that's on The Athletic from our Chelsea reporters picking over the last week in great detail is that they don't expect this to be quick, the sale. They think it could take some months and that's partly because there are, at this point in time, according to people we speak to involved, no credible buyers at the price that Roman Abramovich wants, said to be around £3 billion. And they pour sort of cold water on most of the names that have come out publicly and remind you of this suggestion that you get told in all football takeover situations that when something's going to happen, it will not be a name that has been trailed publicly. And secondly, that Roman Abramovich wants to hand it over to the best possible person to take Chelsea on. The wealth to continue investing and, and keep Chelsea competing at the top end. But when you do look at their finances and the size of his reported asking price and the offers that have come in for Chelsea in the past without any of these issues swirling around and the valuation independently of Chelsea and the valuations of other clubs like Manchester United, you do understand why this won't be done overnight. That £3 billion valuation which came out, um, to me it sounds like an incredible amount of money to be asking for Chelsea when people weren't going close to that £2.5 billion uh, figure a, a few years ago. Obviously, things like the Super League proposals might have made clubs more valuable had, had those 
talks come to fruition. And I think that's the kind of that's the reason why a lot of these clubs fancy fancy the Super League um, as, as an idea because it would make make their their assets worth even more. But if you look at Chelsea, you look at the the stadium situation, which hasn't moved on. You know that there was progress there a few years ago. They had the plan permission, but you know nothing was ever nothing ever accelerated. Nothing ever was built or rebuilt, and it's it's an incredibly expensive acquisition for somebody and then there will be this incredibly expensive long-term business of trying to redesign or rebuild the stadium because of people like Abramovich and um, Sheikh Mansour and Qatar Sports Investments and the, and the Glazers and people like that there's almost nobody left to buy these clubs at because we're now talking about multi-billion pound assets it's very hard to work out who is going to buy the, these these clubs. I totally agree with David and, and, and with Adam that it's this is going to be a long process unless they drop their valuation significantly. I, I think it's um, I think it's going to drag on and on. From Chelsea's point of view, I would have expected them to invest hugely in the summer, as of five or six weeks ago, to to build on you know the spending they've done over the last few years. When I was speaking to an agent over the weekend, it was very much we know the party's over at Chelsea. Whatever goes on from here this club's model is changing. This model is going to become more sustainable. The club is changing and there's probably going to be a need to, to balance out that wage bill because Chelsea are never going to be able to make, you know, unless through selling assets, what, what they are at the moment. So really fascinating time coming up, both in terms of who it's sold to and then how supporters adapt to that new, more sustainable mindset. And on that note, the negotiations over potential transfers for the summer and contract renewals um, have, as we hear it, been halted. Not surprisingly, because they don't know what the future is going to hold. They don't know who's going to own the club. But Chelsea had some key expiring contracts in the summer. Have uh, Antonio Rudiger, Andreas Christensen and... Cesar Aspilicueta, and they will want to be uh, trying to strengthen their squad in normal circumstances. But that now can't happen for the time being until there's a bit more clarity. There was a really interesting analysis, as always, by Swiss Ramble on Twitter um, that pointed out Chelsea have relied more on owner investment than any other Premier League club in recent years. And that party's over quote that Adam gives there is just stark and fascinating because tapping back into one of Ollie's points, who's going to come along and want to lose tons of money just for the prestige of being in a good postcode with a richly successful club in recent history? I don't know. And then that links all the way back round to what we said about this not being quick and Roman Abramovich's ownership being here for a little bit longer. I was told by some people that if he wanted to, he could have he could have got it sold two weeks ago or or at the outbreak overnight. He could have just decided his price and gone. Like Manchester City were sold very quickly at a, a far lower price. Richard Masters of the Premier League said their record is 10 days. We might try and beat that. And he was hinting that, or he was explicitly saying that they wanted a quick sale on this, which was maybe sort of taking the more governmental stance on this. So it's it's an incredible issue, really. This is a paid advertisement from Better Health Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stressors, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give Better Help a try? 
It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. Finally, there's a huge game in the Champions League on Wednesday. Of course, Real Madrid taking on Paris Saint-Germain. And Real Madrid, already heavily linked with Kylian Mbappe, could now, according to your column, David, be about to make a move for Erling Haaland as well. Yeah, their interest, Mark, in Erling Haaland is not new and it's a move I'm sure would appeal to him. It would appeal to most people. So they're very much in the frame and they haven't spent tons of money in the transfer market recently. So the consensus is that they, they can afford the pretty eye-watering numbers that will come with this deal. 75 million euros release clause, not too bad, but then comes salary and agent's commission. And therefore, as we report in the column, it's coming down to, according to the sources we speak to, Real Madrid or Manchester City. Of course, there have been conversations with other clubs as well, the likes of Bayern Munich speaking with... Haaland's camp, Barcelona, uh, I'm not sure PSG too. They could obviously afford it, but I don't think uh, Haaland would be too keen on going to Ligue 1. And so, yeah, it's emerging as a two-horse race. Uh, Manchester City are ready to go with it now. They want to do this deal. He's their prime target, which we've reported since the start of January. So they are all in, so to speak. Real Madrid is more complicated in that they would like to sign Mbappe as a free agent and Haaland at some point. Their preference right now is to bring in Mbappe immediately and then Haaland in 2023. So in 12 months time, a year before the end of his uh, contract at Dortmund and stagger it. They're unlikely to have that luxury because Manchester City are ready to go now. So they may try to take both at the same time, but will Haaland want to do that and share centre stage with Mbappe? We just don't know. What I am told is that uh, the interested clubs are expecting to find out Erling Haaland's decision in the next few weeks. So we're very close to finally putting one of the longest running transfer sagas to bed um, and having his intentions clear. And that obviously, if it's Man City, the, the space is there already, the desire's there, he can slot straight in. More complicated at Real Madrid, but whoever gets him is going to have once fit, because he's not at the moment, uh, one of the most prolific and promising footballers in the world. Real Madrid could do could do both in the same window, could they? We've got no reason to think that they can't because they've been pursuing both. I think the reason that they would prefer Haaland to come in the summer of 2023 is less financially related and more because Karim Benzema is still at the club. He's under contract until the summer of 2023. So perhaps if they're not going to renew with him then Haaland would be the natural replacement for him in 12 months' time. And Mbappe would come now and stagger it like that. You've got other attackers like Vinicius, uh, etc., congesting that part of the pitch. But if City and or others are, are ready to go now, which they are, then 
Real Madrid either have to escalate their plans and try and do the deal for both, which, yeah, as I said, we've got no reason to think they can't, or they're going to have to pull out. And talking of pulling out, I don't think City want to go much beyond the timeline that's been indicated by Haaland's camp, which is a decision in the next few weeks. If it does, I'm led to believe City will turn their attentions elsewhere and they do have alternative options. But of course, there are very few at the level of someone like Erling Haaland. Obviously, Madrid have played PSG in the last couple of weeks and really got, it was a 1-0 battering in the first leg and, and Mbappe scored very late on. PSG are still trying to do that deal They've not given up yet and they're being very flexible with it now. You know, initially it was, can we tie him down for five years, six years and really make him commit, you know, his best years to the club. They're being a bit more pragmatic now. They're saying to Mbappe, look, look at where PSG are at the moment. We've still got Neymar here. We've got Messi for at least one more year after this season. We've got a group of talented players. Pochettino's at the club for now. You're still really young. Why don't you just do, you know, sign for two more years? Real Madrid will still be there for you whenever you want it, you know, when you're 24, 25. So there's no rush for you. And the money's pretty good. The money they're offering is pretty good. I still remember someone close to PSG last year telling me the Qataris will do this deal, even if it bankrupts the club. And imagine how much money it takes to bankrupt (laughs) PSG when you're owned by QSI. So I don't think they've given up. I also am very cautious of that, of that guidance when you think PSG can't really be seen to be giving up before they've played Real Madrid again right like they can't be giving up on that equally I don't think it's cut and dry and I wonder if Madrid to a certain extent are hedging slightly on Mbappe by also going for Haaland now they could be in this situation where they end up with both of them and as David says I don't think it's impossible they do both of them because if you just study Madrid's business over the last 18 months two years okay it's been massively impacted by COVID uh, by stadium regenerations as well but They've really tightened up their wage bill, you know, letting players like Rafa Varane, Martin Odegaard, Sergio Reguilón, uh, Sergio Ramos. Bale's contract will end this summer. Bale's contract will end. Obviously, Ronaldo left a couple of years ago as well. They've been really sort of measured. And even last summer when they, you know, when they let Ramos and Varane go and all they did was David Alaba from Bayern Munich on a free transfer um, obviously, the wages were substantial in that, but they also sold like Hakimi go a couple of years ago as well. I remember people that when I was talking to people close to Ancelotti in Madrid, they were saying, "Yeah, look, we're getting rid of all of those because it's Operation Mbappe. We need to pay for Mbappe." There has never been any doubt in Madrid whatsoever that Mbappe will end up at the club, but they were very confident they'd do that deal last summer, and that now they're very confident they'll do it this summer. And now it's getting closer and closer and imagine if they don't I mean it'd be really embarrassing really really embarrassing for Real Madrid given the confidence that they've had throughout the process my gut instinct is that deal still happens but it's not as cut and dry I think as some people in Madrid would like us to believe it is yeah I think it's really delicate and we've seen how far Madrid are prepared to go judging by the reported figures that they offered for Mbappe with just a short amount of time left on his contract when they could have just reached a pre-contract agreement with him. I think even the parties, clubs who are interested in Haaland are hearing different things about Mbappe by the day. One day it's that he'll be staying on the contract offer that Adam mentions the next day. No, Real Madrid are absolutely convinced that they're getting him. Of course, there could be a loser in this in Manchester City if indeed Mbappe does stay and Haaland goes to Real Madrid then City have to take their focus away from a player that they've been pursuing as their primary target for a number of months now 
and look elsewhere. But the other thing, David, is Barcelona were reported last week to have held a meeting as well yeah. with Haaland in, in Germany, which um, I've also had sort of separately mm. sourced as as being correct. And they are they are telling agents, not of Haaland, but other agents, that they believe they have a chance. Now, whether that's bravado or anything like that, I, I don't really know, but that is something going on. Yeah, definitely it is. They've met, so have Bayern Munich. But when you speak to people around this situation, you hear all manner of things, such as bravado and being seen to be trying to go for the best players in the world as part of your recovery in the case of Barcelona and as part of your continuity in terms of Bayern Munich. They don't know what's going to happen with Lewandowski. But then when you drill into it, you're told and you stand to be corrected that... Bayern wouldn't go near Haaland's required salary or demanded salary, nor the agent's commission, that Barcelona would have to do some more financial magic to come anywhere near being able to pull this off. And all the while, you've got Manchester City ready with all the finances, with the space in their squad, no complications to doing it right now. And Real Madrid potentially as well, depending on that Mbappe outcome. And there have been reports that he's always desired Haaland a move to Real Madrid. So there's another thing in this that he'll be considering is the career trajectory. So somewhere like a Bayern would have appealed perhaps because you may have done a couple more years in the Bundesliga. I don't think Bayern would be so happy about that. And then move to an England or Spain. If you go to a Real Madrid you may be the next Benzema, which is going to be taking your whole career at the Bernabeu by the looks of it. If you go to City, you could probably do a few years and still move to Real Madrid. Um, Barcelona, a bit of a toss-up. PSG, it doesn't seem that he wants to go to Liga despite their ability to finance it. So there are so many factors at play. I'm just nostalgic for the days where Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's relationship with Haaland was going to be um, (laughs) persuading him to Old Trafford in the Europa League. And so we come full circle. Uh, Thank you both, David Ornstein, Adam Crafton. Thank you. And you can read plenty more on all those stories across The Athletic. And you can subscribe now for just £1 a month for the first six months. Just go to theathletic.com slash football pod. And I'll be back on Thursday with Matt Slater for the Business of Sport podcast. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.